Well, Lucas, how you doing? Good, good. Excited for tonight. Yeah, me too. I mean, this is a topic we've kind of glanced on a little bit through our almost year of recording the Retic Lounge, but I think this is going to be the most comprehensive in terms of just behavioral and different aspects in terms of like target training with your animals. Um, but we'll, we'll talk to the expert herself and we're even joined by an, another special guest uh, with her tonight. So we'll see how long he sticks around. Yeah. So for episode 53, we have Lori Torini on. Um, for those of you that don't know her, she is just like a behavioral expert with reptiles. She is kind of leading the way in terms of choice-based handling, target training, and all these other aspects that she's going to uh, talk to us about today. And what's cool is we're going to kind of get a little bit more in depth than we have in other episodes, um, the psychology behind it, all that good stuff. Uh, and super excited before we jump on it and get started with that. Just want to remind you guys, if you're running into our episode for the first time, uh, we are almost at 1K subs. We are doing that 1K subscriber giveaway um, for VivTech Products, uh, one of our affiliate sponsors. So if you don't know what we're talking about by now, also follow our Instagram. Um, we have posts on there that explain everything. And uh, yeah, and if you guys are not already part of, of our Patreon family, and you guys want to do that, the link down below, patreon.com, the Retic Lounge. Uh, we are almost at 70 members, growing steadily, and just have a cooking. great community <laughs> cooking. We're on fire. Well, and our um, Discord's always super active, and that's what I like about it the most. I mean, you can get on there and engage anytime, and great discussion too. So, yeah, retics or not. Um, but, anyways, um, I think I want to go ahead and bring Lori on. So whether you're just getting into retics or you've been breeding for years, the first place you want to visit is Stewart Design. More and more breeders keep showing up at shows on Morph Market and are all over social media. Sometimes it may feel possible to get anyone's attention. Stewart Designs helps small businesses like yours do big things through brand clarity, helping entrepreneurs to start and scale businesses that are easy to know and love. Their work can help any company or industry but they've done a ton of work for ours. Stewart Design created the brands for US Arc, Canova, Reach Out Reptiles, Coiled, and dozens of other well-known reptile breeders. Like many of us, the owner of Stewart Design, Blake, is a keeper and breeder who fell in love with retics through first working with Garrett Hartle. Although Stewart Design does a lot of corporate work, Blake has a passion for working with people in the reptile industry. Stewart Design can help if you're just getting started or you're ready to take things to the next level, you're struggling to stand out and build your presence online or at shows, you don't want to be like the other guys or get lost in the crowd, and you want to make your own way doing what you love. And also, you have big ideas and know your business is special, but you need help sharing it with the reptile community. If something here resonates with you, reach out to Blake and have a conversation. To learn more or get started, visit stuartdesignbrands.com or call them at 855-SD-LOGOS. Clear brands own markets. Stuart Design helps create them. If you are in the market for an enclosure for your reticulated python or any other one of your reptiles, Focus Cubed Habitats is your one-stop shop for not only the best-looking cages on the market, but also provide amazing features and add-ons to your cages. We partnered with Focus Cubed Habitats because they continue to innovate and change the way we house 
are animals unlike any other caging company out there. Their cages are designed intelligently and provide the most stylish and secure housing for your animal's comfort and well-being. Visit focuscubedhabitats.com for your animal's caging needs. Again, visit focuscubedhabitats.com for some amazing and stylish enclosures. We also want to thank VivTech Products for being an affiliate sponsor of the Retic Lounge. Stop by VivTech Products for the best UV spectrum lighting on the market that will enhance and improve your snake's overall well-being and health. Visit VivTechProducts.com and use the code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Again, visit VivTechProducts.com and use our affiliate code RETICLOUNGE23 today for 15% off. Looking for the perfect accessories for your hatchlings or juvenile retics? Look no further than Heli Guy Serpents. Our sponsor, Chris Sexton, is coming in hot with an amazing 3D printer, creating top-notch perches and other caging accessories for your beloved pets. Enrich your retics environment with their high-quality products. Use our promo code TRL10 for a 10% discount on your purchase. Visit them today at heliguyserpents.com and start giving your pets the best. Heli Guy Serpents, the premier source for 3D printed caging accessories. Again, that's www.heliguyserpents.com and use our promo code TRL10 for 10% off all of your 3D printed accessories today. Hi, it's going well. I'm having a busy work day like usual. <laughs> awesome. And we are recording on a Sunday. So for those of you that, that, uh, are wondering when we are. She's even working hard on a Sunday. I do work weekends because I have clients, you know, all over the country and in other countries. Um, I do a lot of virtual consults and coaching over Zoom. Um, I work nights mostly. So, and, and also many of the snakes I work with are very active and alert at night. And so that's when I want to work with them when they're active and alert on their own time schedule. That's actually a good point. That like, I mean, obviously as, as a, you know, snake keeper myself, you know, that most of them are nocturnal and, um, but didn't even like think to consider that in terms of the stuff that you do. So can you go ahead and just kind of introduce yourself, what it is that you're actually talking about in terms of like teaching and, and all that good stuff. Sure. And well, as, my name is, is oh, Lori Torino. Sorry as well. I want you to introduce your guests for just like the people that haven't oh, yet course. like been introduced through your super dwarf Sundays or, you know, Okay. Any of your videos that you've thrown up. Yeah, so I'm Lori, and this is Tau Seti, and I call him TC for short. And he's a four-year-old, 62.5% Kalatoa, um, super, mostly super dwarf, reticulated python. He came from Reach Out Reptiles. He's one of two that I have. The other one's name is Ryder, and he's a 75% Kalatoa. And uh, I've had TC since he was eight weeks old. I started him from that time with choice-based interactions and target training and station training, which we'll talk about. Um, he's always willing to come out and usually be with me on camera. All I literally have to do is open the door and wait a few minutes and he's, he's ready to come out. That's awesome. So, um, um, I'm an animal trainer and behaviorist. I've been an animal trainer for over 30 years and um, animal training and the laws of learning um, the concepts apply across taxa. That means they're applied to all species, whether wild or domestic, um, whether pets or livestock. 
the manner in which you communicate with the animals may have to be different depending on the species, but the concepts of training science are the same. And then I'm also an animal behaviorist, and that's something I just started studying about six years ago. And I just started with one course in animal behavior. I enjoyed it. So then I did um, a certificate program at the University of Washington to augment the zookeeping degree that I already had. So it was a uh, one-year program to earn a certificate in applied animal behavior. I really, really liked that. So then I studied with Dr. Susan Friedman. She's um, a professor, um, a retired professor from Utah State University, and she actually works in child psychology and animal psychology. Basically, I took her living and learning with animals course, which is an excellent course, but one of the hardest courses I've ever taken. Um, behavior science is hard. It's difficult. Um, those are have been, I just am finishing a degree now. I've, I've taken it on to now a four-year degree in animal behavior because I like behavior science so much. And some of my most difficult classes have been those that are strictly behavior science because they want everything to be observable, to be measurable. And they want everything articulated and definable, especially when we're talking about so many things that can be subjective. You can't have it subjective in behavior science. It has to be what behaviors can we observe? How can we measure that behavior? And how can we define that in some type of terms that everyone can understand and be on the same page? So since I've I've gotten into animal behavior. It's made me a much more effective animal trainer. And the two fields work excellently in conjunction with each other. Oh, I bet. And and you talking about just behavioral approaches being difficult. There's a reason <laughs> why I, I fall more on like the, the existential type of approach as a therapist, just because the behavioral approach is just so, again, just, you know, very strict and regimented and, and, and so, um, you know, it, it's a little bit different with, you know, the human psyche and being able to actually measure right. progress. So um, applied animal behavior is a, is very much formula centric and, and everything's defined and everything has to be measured. So I try to balance that with more intuitive, um, science. So I also study with Dr. Christina Spalding, who's a neuropsychologist and she works with animals she brings a lot of neuroscience and how the brain actually functions into animal training, but also a lot of um, resiliency training and stress and how stress impacts animals. And so I try to have a balanced approach to behavior and training and not just go totally the ABA route. Yeah, no, and that that's... Uh, I... I feel like with animals, that's definitely appreciated for the sole purpose that that any interaction that you're doing with your animal can increase stress, right? right. Um, so I feel like it, yeah, best of both worlds. But if you don't mind me asking, so like when, where did like the reptile person from you just like start showing? Like when, when did you get into reptiles? How long have you liked them for? Well, so I'm an animal person. I grew up around animals, loving animals. I had tons of different species of animals growing up. Um, I got my first snake what, in my What's the early, what's the weirdest animal you've ever had? Like growing um, up? The weirdest. Like the most animal. out there. I don't know. I mean, I've had all kinds of exotic mammals like guinea pigs and ferrets and chinchillas. Um, of course, the typical animals, horses, dogs, cats, snakes, turtles, um, llamas, potbelly pigs. I really, really loved my potbelly pigs. I just lost my last one at age 19. Oh, wow. Years ago, Cordelia. So, uh, I grew up with some as well. I love them. They're so neat. Uh, ferrets, 
uh, parrot, some birds, ducks, chickens. I don't know. You know, I love animals. So I, I got a snake when I was in my, in like 1995 ish. I don't know. And I just had the one, but then when I um, was getting close to changing careers from animal training to animal behavior, and I was getting a degree in zookeeping, I took herpetology and I'm like, you know what? I need to get another snake. I really miss the snake. Um, and then I got more than one. And then I got one that had some behavioral issues with excessive fear and anxiety. And I thought if this was a different species, how would you manage that? So I started target training her and doing passive habituation with her. And it worked so well. I started helping other people with their snakes. And I saw that there was such a huge hole in the reptile community for a, an animal trainer and a behaviorist that was working with pet owners and keepers. Um, there are people that do it in zoos, but not so much working with people who have snakes in their homes. And and I worked a little bit with Reptelligence. That's Carrie Davis and Peter Amelia. They do it part-time, some snake training and some snake training courses. But I decided I'm going to do this full-time. I'm going to take what I know about animal behavior and training. I'm going to apply it to snakes because it's needed. And I just love them. And that was about six years ago that I started doing that. Yeah, I think that that hole is huge. And um, how many times have all of us heard of, you know, someone giving up their snake because they're just scared of it. Mm -hmm. So being able to manage your interactions and how that animal's reacting to your handling and when you need to interact with it, that's, yeah, that's, that's giant in our industry. And I want to add to that as well, because that that's extremely true, Nathan, but also like, you're also helping people overcome barriers that they're having to connect with animals that they originally wanted. And I feel like that, like it, it's just equally as rewarding for, you know, the person and the, the snake. Um, I think that's cool. So you, when you say that you are kind of a, a, you know, a teacher, a coach, or, you know, when you're, when you're doing this, um, is it a kind of like a, a webcam, like zoom mm -hmm. call type of thing? Um, phone call, text, all of the above. And if it's a local person, um, so I do animal training and that's kind of the traditional thing. You think of a dog obedience class or horse training, you know, you bring your horse to a trainer and they train the horse and then they coach you on what they taught it and you ride it. I do all that. And I still will do that in person for local people. Um, but I also coach people over zoom video chat or the telephone or however they're comfortable with it. I prefer prefer video if they're going to train their animal and I'm going to coach them. So that way they can set up the camera when their snake is active and alert and it's an opportune time for them to be trained and interact with us. And I tell them, you know, do this, do that. Yes, that's good. Okay. Reinforce now. Okay. Move the target here or do this. And we just do the whole coaching session. So that's the animal training aspect, but then the animal behavior aspect is behavior modification. So if an animal is having what a human perceives as an issue or problem behavior, it's usually a problem for the human and not the animal. Then we go through and we decide why is the animal doing the behavior and what can we change about the environment so the animal doesn't do that behavior? What can we change about the animal's emotional state so it's not in that state of mind? How can we change the human's behavior to impact the animal's behavior? And we come up with a behavior modification plan. 
Or sometimes I just meet with the person one-on-one because they have questions and they just need behavior consultation. And sometimes the animal's not part of it. Okay. That seems like a pretty thorough custom client centered approach that you take. So that's, that's pretty awesome. And yeah, you mentioned one of your needs. Per- yeah. You mentioned I mean, one of your of professors the- was out from Utah state. Are you located here in Utah? No, I'm in Colorado. Oh, okay. so, so not too far. Um, yes. Dr. Susan Friedman is located in Utah and I took her courses online. Okay, cool. Cool. Yeah. Um, which by the way, um, you know, the line of work that I'm in, we got to go and see, uh, uh, Paul's, uh, for purple hearts, which is a nonprofit organization that, that, uh, does service animals for wounded vets. And, um, mm-hmm. we went out there to, I, I found out that you can get a PhD in animal behavior. You can, which so- is insane. It's so amazing because I'm sure it's so complex, but like on the surface level, you wouldn't even think about that, but like, yes. it's, it's pretty amazing. It is. And so if someone's interested in that, you like I started with one course and then I took a one year certificate program and then I took a four year bachelor's program that um, I'm just finishing now. Actually, I, it, I'm done in November. And then in January, I'm starting a master's program in animal behavior at, the, at Virginia Tech. So then you can go on if you want. I'm not I don't know that I will <laughs> and get a PhD in it. <laughs> That's pretty awesome. So um you know, there, there was one part that, that I left out when I was kind of thinking about the the interview guide that I want to touch on. And I'm saying this just verbally so that you two can remind me because I'll forget. But okay. I want to talk about like myths about target training retakes because there's a lot of people that are just completely, a- d- despite all the evidence to show that it works, there's a lot of people who are still very weary about it. And um, I- I'm sure that's like a... a like a, a we can bite into that right now but okay. i think we'll do our listeners justice okay, if we well, go into it i certainly can speak to that because first of all i will say there's no excuse because i have how many hundreds of videos and and like a whole year's worth of every sunday was a retick training video so i don't know how people right. all you have to do is watch a few and you can see in fact tc voluntarily stationed for microchip implant with no restraint And so I guess I don't know what else I can say other than he shifted out of his enclosure to a stand. We rolled it over to a table. He shifted onto the table. He stretched out longitudinally. He stayed still in position while he was microchipped and then he was released. And we did not restrain him and he could have left at any time. And so I really just say, I don't know what more someone would have to know than that or see than that to know that retics can be (laughs) trained. I mean, I don't know what more someone would want. Even yeah. the sensation of the implant didn't get him to move at all. No, because we reinforced him as soon as we did the, as soon as we stuck with the needle, we gave him a reinforcer, which was food. Okay. And he so, we worked up to that. That wasn't like, oh, we just decided to do this. We had been working up to that for a long time. Those different approximations and those different steps. And I'd been touching him just like I was going to stick the needle, you know, and getting him used to something touching him there and, and getting simulating a needle, you know, and worked up every step of the way until we got to that point. It wasn't like, oh, let's just try this today. 
yeah what's course. amazing about what's amazing about all of this it's it's like i know a lot of it because i we hired someone who was amazing <laughs> to help us with our dogs right and so even just like i'm i'm being flashback to that when you said like the word and then we released him and I, and i'm like no she didn't release him into the wild for anyone thinking that she's, she's talking about giving a cue to allow the snake to do what it's going to do yes. and no longer have to be there. So that that's pretty cool. I'm excited to jump into detail about some of the, the terminology and things that you're talking about. Um, so let, I, let's break down exactly first off, like what is target training? You know, and and what are the different methods of target training and the different, you know, intentions and purposes? Um, I want to hear about target training first, because I think that's the one that most people I I hear, at least in our Discord uh, and Patreon, as well as like in the community of people talking about with retics. Target training is just teaching an animal to touch a target with part of their body. Very simply put, that's what it is. The target can be anything. And the body part that you ask the animal to touch with it can be anything. And the advantage of doing that is once the animal understands I have to touch that target with my nose or with my paw or with my hip, whatever it is, then anywhere you place that target, the animal should go to. That means if you want the animal in the case of a snake to come out of their enclosure and you have the target on the outside of the enclosure, it should come out to the target. If you want it to go into the enclosure, it should go into the target. Wherever you place that target, the animal should go to. That's the simplest explanation. But of course, a target can also be used just as a signal. So we have a language. And if it was time to eat, I could tell you, Lucas, it's dinner time. And you don't have to do anything. You don't have to pay me. You don't have to behave in a certain way. You just come in and eat. I tell you it's dinner time and you get food. So you can use a target just as a signal like that. So every time I show you the target, you get food. That's classical conditioning. A means B. You know, the target means food. The target means food. The target means food. The snake doesn't have to do anything to earn it. It doesn't matter if the snake's throwing a tent. doesn't matter the snake's behavior. They just, the target's there, you get food. Is that like just Pavlovian conditioning? It is. And that's super helpful for some people And I actually recommend that at a minimum so that your snake knows when it's going to get fed. And then at no other time will it think it's going to get fed. Because if you have that word, in this case, the target that says food, and that's not being presented, then you're not getting food. So it just eliminates confusion. Predictability is something that animals like. If you can eliminate surprisingness, animals are a lot calmer and and a lot less stressed. So at the very minimum, I recommend a cue to eat and a cue to let the snake know I'm going to touch you and pick you up. And that could be anything as well. It could be a different target. It could be a PVC. It could be a paper towel roll. It could be a hook. When I touch you with this, you get picked up and you can't opt out. This is one of those times when I'm just telling you what's going to happen. A again means B. I touch you with this, you're getting picked up. I touch you with this, you're getting picked up. That's classical conditioning. But you can also use target training operantly, and that's how I use it in most cases. And that's where the target is a discriminatory stimulus. That means that the target means that the animal has an opportunity to earn reinforcement if they engage with that target in some way, if they perform some behavior when they're presented with that target, 
then they get food. So it's not just me saying, Lucas, we're going to eat and you get food no matter how horrible you were to me that day or how you're behaving. You're just going to get fed. But now if I say, Lucas, I have dinner ready, but first you have to wash the car, do the dishes. First, I need you to take the trash out. That's you earning the food through some type of operant behavior. You've got to behave first to do something to the environment in order to get reinforced now. So okay. that is an operant way to use target training. And that takes longer. And that's where those step-by-step -step approximations come in. Can you I, give an example? Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through the opera conditioning aspect of target training with like a, a any snake, a retake or whatnot, but but you're you're presenting the target and that snake is right. knowing there's an opportunity to eat. So what are some things you that you would generally have them yeah, do? Yeah, you have to teach them it means that. I mean, they have no idea what the target means. You're you're showing them this thing and they have no idea what it means. Uh, I thought I had one sitting around here, but you guys have seen them in the videos. It yeah. can be anything. It could be an index card. I use either a round ball on a stick or a flat, like lid looking thing on a stick. Um, buoy targets are common in zoos. I use a buoy target for a couple of my snakes. Um, I can grab one real quick. It's right around the corner. And then you'll know exactly what I'm talking about. All right. She should make her own reptile. Lori, have yeah. you ever thought about, have you ever thought about like making and selling your own targets? So I have um, one of my behavior clients. She's an artist and she actually sells targets, animal training okay. targets. So she, she sells the flat ones. So this is an example of a, a lollipop target is called and a buoy target. And the reason I grabbed these snakes, pythons don't see red. So they don't That's have the what color I was gonna options ask. in their eyes to be able to see red. So this is what would be an S delta to TC. That's some stimulus in the environment that means nothing. It doesn't mean he can earn reinforcement or anything. It's just okay. a thing. So um, his target's blue. It's a blue flat disc. And so that's the discriminatory stimulus. When he sees that, he knows I'm a, he's being asked to do a behavior. And then he can earn reinforcement. But they have no idea what this means when you first show it to them. They're just like, okay, that's a thing. You know, and some snakes are going to be curious about it and investigate it. Some are going to be like, it's just neutral. And some might be afraid of it. So you have to teach them first to interact with it. So you just pair it with a reinforcer. And I usually start with food. I pair it with food about two or three times. If I know I'm going to transition to operant conditioning from classical, I unpair that with food pretty quickly because they learn super fast to associate it with food. And I, I want to get away from that. So let's say three sessions. I just show the target and feed them in front of it. I just pair it with food. And then so let's say in session four, and this is just numbers I'm pulling out. It might vary for each snake. Okay, for some snakes, it might be session 14. For some, it might be session three. Let's say you've paired the target with food three times. And session four, now you just show the target. And so as soon as the snake looks at it, now you give the food. So now in the next session, you show the target and the snake looks at it and no food comes yet. So he moves a little bit towards it. So now I give the food. And then the next session after that, I show the target. He looks at it. He moves towards it. No food comes yet. So he moves closer to it and he touches it. Now he gets reinforced. And so I just keep building steps onto it until we're all the way at the behavior I want the snake to do. 
The trick now, when is, you unpair with food, what do you offer as a, a reward to an animal like this? So when I say pair with food, I mean, show the food. If this um, towel is the food, I mean, literally pair it at the same time. Oh, the okay, okay. The there at the same time. Gotcha. Thank so you. I thought you were Unpairing it. I, w- food I wish you would have said chin rubs instead, but <laughs> I have the food still out of sight or nearby, and I show the target. The snake looks at it, then I give the food. So okay. I'm still using food as a reinforcer. I'm just giving it later and later, and the snake is learning that they have to that reinforcement is delayed, okay. and they have to do behaviors first and delay that reinforcement you know, until they've done the behavior and then they get reinforced. So the trick is to make the approximations big enough that the snake learns and grows, but not so big that they get frustrated because what can happen and what usually happens at some point during the training is the snake has looked at the target, moved towards it, touched it. And then you move it a little further and they're like, what the heck? Like, I want my food. I've done all this stuff. I'm not getting it. And they strike at the target. Dogs do it too. Um, I'm yep. target training my newest dog. And if I'm making her wait too long, like she's done these behaviors and I want her to do one more. And she's like, no. And she'll take her paw and just slap the target out of my hand. So <laughs> yep. Sounds about right. So the key is to build in those steps so that the snake is challenged each time, but before they get frustrated. <laughs> yeah. Because frustration sets in, they sometimes will either strike at the target or they'll just give up and say, well, forget it. And then they'll turn and actually leave the training area. And if that happens, you just re- you just start over and you make the approximation a little bit easier. You know, you might have to back up a step or two in order to move forward then. So uh, just to clarify, like I- I'm, I'm, asking this selfishly because I just got a Sulawesi locality that is strictly a pet. I don't plan to breed her and she is going to, I'm going to be target training her. Um, so basically you're, you're showing target with food right behind. And as soon as they're giving a response and they are pausing because they're looking at the target, like you want to, that those first couple times you want to reinforce right away. Well, so you're it's, give it- it's simultaneous. There is no delay. Those first couple times, Okay, cool. You're just feeding them like normal, but the target. You're just you're introducing a, a stimulus, right? So you're okay. not showing the target first and then feeding. Those first few times, you're literally just feeding the snake like you normally would, but the target is is there. Okay, cool. And then they just get used to seeing that target every time food's there, and they're like, "Oh, every time that thing is there, I get fed." And that's where they start that association. But if you know cool. you're going to use it operantly down the road, you want to teach them the target means do a behavior and the reinforcer, the food comes from somewhere else. Another, I mean, there's a lot of things you can run into then is because this really smart snakes learn that. So they'll look at the target and then look at you like, okay, where's my food? I know it doesn't come from the target. I'm ready. And I'm like, no, you've got to go interact with the target. Okay. So, you know, things come up, which is why coaching helps. But I do have literally step-by-step target training videos that show every single step. And then I'm doing a series right now on troubleshooting these little things that can come up and how to problem solve through that, you know. So I want to now ask about 
choice-based handling. And um, I'm really excited to talk to you about this and to get information kind of more in depth about it because um, before I even, um, you know, before I was, I had, you know, friends that were working with you or, you know, uh, before I even knew that target training was a thing or that you were talking about choice-based handling, which I don't know how long you've been, um, you know, applying or publicly posting videos about choice-based handling. Um, but I, I've been doing this now for many of my animals, not obviously not, you know, in a controlled scientific every single time. Um, but for, for many snakes that are, uh, very food responsive right off the bat or some that are nervous. Um, I started opening up the enclosure and just literally standing on the opposite side of the room and just waiting. And I started noticing that snakes were a lot more calm. They'd come out on their own. And when they came out on their own, I would still have my hook. Um, and when they came out of their own, I'd do just a gentle touch just to make sure that they didn't start flying out at me. Um, and I saw that that was extremely helpful with increasing my positive interactions with my animals. And then I started yep. hearing more people talking about choice-based handling. And I was like, oh, okay, so I'm doing choice-based handling, I guess not to a perfect T, but tell us a little bit about um, what what it is and kind of the advantages and, and uh, I guess, the different applications mm-hmm. of utilizing so choice, it. So choice-based interactions are just anytime you're interacting with the snake and it's choosing to interact with you. So whether that interaction is just being visible in their enclosure and not hiding or coming out of their enclosure and roaming around while you're in the room or approaching you and climbing on you, which is what TC does. I mean, I open the door and I'm standing there and he comes out and climbs on me. I think retics are very affiliative towards people. And I think that's one of their really good qualities as a pet snake is they really seem affiliative to people. Whereas, I have other snakes I do more with training wise, but they're not as, they're not afraid of me. They don't shrink away from me, but they're not going to approach me and climb on me and stay with me as long as TC has even tonight. Like they're going to be like, I'm done with this. I want to go roam around and do my own thing. But TC's much more willing to just hang out. And I like that about retics. Um, you know, when I'm looking for a snake like that, like he's one of the f- snakes I'll bring out if someone wants to be introduced to a snake because he's very affiliative to people. Um, So that's what choice-based interactions are, is the snake is choosing to engage with you and with their environment voluntarily. Choice-based handling is like TC's free to leave, but he's not really trying to escape and avoid or get away. Like he's moving through my hands, but he's not like trying to make a run for it. And when I opened the enclosure, he climbed out onto my hand. So I'm not reaching in and getting him and I'm not reaching in and picking him up. He's choosing to climb onto me and then I'm handling him. If he didn't want me to handle him, he wouldn't climb on me because he knows that's what's going to happen if he does it. So that's what choice-based handling is. And when you do that, And the snake is the one making the decision to consent to being touched, to consent to handling, to choose to interact with you or something else in their environment, then that reduces fear, anxiety, and distress. You know, it's their choice to do it. It's like if I, I don't know what time you guys normally sleep, but think you're, it's the middle of your sleep time. 
and I break into your house and I open your bedroom door and I turn on your light and I grab you out of bed and I'm like, we're going to go do this thing. Versus Versus me calling ahead and saying, hey, I'm on my way over and I knock on your door and you choose to get up and let me in and engage with me. Yeah. You're going to have a completely different emotional state in those two circumstances. One is force-based and one is I chose to do this. You know, if you're right. teaching somebody to swim, do you allow them the choice to get in when they're ready? Or are you one of those people that throws them in and holds them underwater until they see that they can swim? I mean, you know, you can ruin somebody by trying to teach them something that way. In other words, well, I might have learned how to swim, but now I hate the water and I'm never going to do this again. Right. So that's the difference between force-based handling and choice-based handling or interactions. But understand it's on a continuum and it's based on the individual animal and the circumstances and the context because these animals, so total choice-based interactions would be, we don't force anything. Like we open our front door and if the snakes come in from the wild and choose to live in our house, they choose to live in our house. And the other end of that spectrum is, we're holding our snake and we're grabbing onto it and we're not letting them move. And they're going to do whatever we say, like every second of the day or night. So it's the spectrum <laughs> and no, we're already. It, you know, I, I can agree them. to that spectrum because I was going to say, like, I do that. Like I, I do what I, you know, I'll open up my enclosures or the, you know, the, 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 the racks that I have the babies in and um, I'm patient. I'll wait. I'll even go to another snake but there are, I mean, I'm most of my retics um, at least once a week are going to choose to stay inside. And that's the time, the time that they decided to smear their crap all over the walls. And at that point, I'm like, sorry, you're coming out. Like I gave you the opportunity, but I got to get you out. Unfortunately, it's not a fear thing. They're not striking. They're not like super nervous or defensive, but it's not the approach that I would love to take but at the end of the day i gotta make sure your enclosure doesn't have fecal matter all over the place i would right. imagine that's so where I would conditioning also say, though, you don't want to leave it that way long term but could you wait an hour could you wait six hours until there's a more opportune time to clean that and that's yeah. what i coach a lot of my clients because i have some that are very fastidious about stuff and they're like the water's dirty i have to clean it or the humid hide. He pooped in the humid hide, but he's in his humid hide. So I'm going to have to take him out. No, that's not an emergency. Like that literally is not an emergency. Wait, like till tomorrow, even wait till he comes out of the humid hide, then remove the humid hide and clean it. If the water's dirty, well, the water's dirty. I have to get it out. Just get a coffee mug with drinking water and set it inside the door. And now the snake has clean drinking water. till there's a better time to intrude into the space and get the water out and clean it. So there's always these workarounds and I give people the challenge to think what's the least intrusive manner that I can still accomplish this care. And does that mean waiting a little bit and not doing it right this second? Or if it's an emergency, it's an emergency. Like it's a fire we're evacuating, you know, that's an emergency, but some of these things aren't emergencies. So think, can I wait a few hours? Can I wait till tomorrow? Or is the snake in their hide and can I just cover the hide with something and then do what I need to do and then uncover the hide? You know, people think, Oh, I have to take the snake out to do this. Well, do you really, or can you work around so you're being less intrusive and still accomplishing effective care? So I work a a lot with my clients (laughs) on exercises like that. 
on, okay, let's yeah. just breathe a minute. Can you think of another way you can do this without removing the snake or without doing this or without doing this, or can it wait? Or is that really an emergency? So, um, you know, that's another aspect of that spectrum. So if I, that has to, that has a vet appointment and, you know, they're not awake, they're not alert. I open the enclosure and they don't come out, but they're in a hide. I just lift the whole hide out and I put it in the transport container and we go to the vet like that. Um, things like that. Like what's the least intrusive way that I can do this and minimize stress to the snake. And we are always as humans quick to just want to reach in and grab things and force, but there is that spectrum. Yeah. And And if there's a fire, yeah, you might be reaching in and grabbing them out of their hide and stuffing them in a bag and we're out of here. And that's really high on that force spectrum. But if it's just, well, you know, um, I'm doing an interview and I'd like to have a snake with me. Okay. Well, about 30 minutes beforehand, I'll open the door and I'll see if the snake comes out. And usually it's more like 30 tenths of a second and TC is out because retics really, really value freedom. Mm-hmm. And it's never, I've never, I don't think I've ever one time taken TC out of his enclosure. Like I've never had to, but because yeah. I handled him and interacted with him so much and he trusts me so much, if I did in an emergency, I think, I mean, nothing would happen. You know, I'm happy that you mentioned a lot of the cat, like the different ways about go because I've always thought, you know, I, I wanted to. That was a big reason I, I, I really was interested in hearing about that is just the ways to troubleshoot and problem solve. And, and as a matter of fact, I've I've acquired some like adult retics um, that when I first get them, um, quite frankly, are are uh, can be dangerous animals. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's kind of what you said rang a bell because I never thought about doing it in, in regards to choice based handling when it comes to like a dirty cage. Um, but I do it when it comes to like risk and safety and danger in regards to my part, because I have animals that I'll go in and there's just days where I know today is not the day, or I'll check back later this evening uh, to try mm-hmm. to get this animal out because right now, if I force to get this animal out, I'm going to get hurt. <laughs> well, and Absolutely. ask yourself. So you need to ask yourself some questions with your snakes. So you, you're interested in target training. So mm-hmm. back to that, I would say, what's your goal? Like, what is your reason for target training? Is it for fun? Because that's okay. Is it just for a challenge for you and your snake? Is it for enrichment or exercise for your snake? Is it to affect care more easily is it to teach them cooperative behaviors so that you have to use less force and you can get more voluntary behaviors out of them so you have to ask yourself what's my goal in doing this and you have to ask yourself that when you're affecting care as well what is my goal right now does the snake need an injection does it need to go to the vet does it absolutely need something that's health related in life and death or can it wait for a better time or can it wait until I figure out a more strategic way to do this that isn't going to be so dangerous for me and so stressful for the snake. So it's, it's a problem solving challenge for you and you weigh what you need to do and it's urgency against how you're going to do that. Right. Yeah. That totally makes sense. But you have to ask yourself some questions on, you know, on the forefront first, like why am I changing the water right the second? Is it a have to, or is it just, I want to do it right now? 
Yeah. And I would say definitely, and I mean, I'm going to be 100% honest. Um, I, I would say being a breeder, having several retakes, it's definitely a convenience thing where if I don't get to cleaning waters and cleaning cages right now, I got A, B, and C to do later. And then by the time I'm back in the snake room tomorrow, I got another half a dozen retakes that I got to clean and do waters. And so um, absolutely, it gets to, you know, when when you, and I don't even think that you need a big size collection um, to get to that point where I would say that most breeders across the board for all species are very selfish when it comes to the interactions they have with their, it's very much on our time, on our agenda, on our watch. I'm taking you out of your enclosure. Um, and that going back to that question, like why I want to start target training with this one animal that I have and at least start there. It's because She's not going to be a breeder. She's a pet. She's a very big locality retic um, that eventually I'm going to get a walk-in for her. And the purpose of doing it with her is because I want me and her to just have a relationship that is completely safe for both of us, that both of us can get enrichment and enjoyment from each other. Because having that with such a large animal, I think, would just be like the pinnacle, the most rewarding thing you could do with a retic. Right. So you just for those reasons need to be committed to consistently only feeding when the target's there. Right. And then if you want to build that operant behavior, like, well, what if I need her to come out? Then, you know, you just build the goal behaviors onto that target training, but you can also certainly have targets or other signals for different behaviors. Like TC has a separate target, I don't really use it anymore, honestly. I mean, he's been with me four years now. And the friendlier, friendlier, more affiliative with people, more comfortable and relaxed with people the snake is, really the less you use the trained behaviors at some point because you don't need them anymore. Yeah, exactly. So TC, I used to show him a target to let him know I was going to open the door. And so he would see that target and he would know the door's opening. Um, but now, I mean, I don't need that anymore. <laughs> Because he sees me in the room and he's at the door waiting for me to open it and he just comes out. Um, and I, I actually had somebody on social media, you know, I don't usually give free behavior advice on social media, but every now and then if I happen to be in a good mood and I've got time, I'll answer someone's question. And it was just, it wasn't a question directly to me, but I happened to see it and I, I answered a question about choice-based handling. Um because they were getting bitten and bitten by their snake because they would reach into the enclosure. And, you know, clearly the behavior they were describing was the snake was fearful and it was defensive aggression. Like I'm afraid and I'm trying to create distance and I'm biting you because I want you to get out of my space. I'm scared. And um, I said, well, you know, I explained a little bit about choice-based interactions and the target training is separate. You can do them both together, but you, you don't have to. Um, and somebody else in the comments said, well, when is the last time you reached your hand up to your snake, you know, door and, and didn't get bit. And I said, hang on one second. And I went into TC's enclosure and I took a quick video of me opening the door and him climbing out on my hand. And then I went and posted it as the, as my next comment. And then <laughs> that ended the discussion. Yeah. You know, because I've yeah, never I've- been bit. I've been bit. I have a hundred and I think 18 snakes here between my personal ones and the ones that are part of our animal sanctuary. And I've been bitten by one in the last, um, what, five years that we've had this operation going. One oh, wow. snake has bitten me. 
it's not hard to avoid that if you read body language and behavior, if you respect what the animal's telling you and you build these communication, you build this language between you and your snake where you're communicating and you're, you're increasing predictability, reducing surprisingness, which reduces fear, anxiety, and distress and startle responses. You make it clear when they're being fed, when they're being touched, when you're going to put your hands in the enclosure. Um, and the snake that I was bitten by was one relinquished for biting. And it was after he'd been here a while and I was trying to find out what the trigger was. So I kept pushing and pushing, you know, until I figured out what the triggers were. Um, but all of the other snakes here, the, the retics, all of them, the other pythons, I have a Maclots python here. I have a lot of species here. I've been bitten only by that one. So I just want to let people know that it's always on us if we get bitten. We've made some mistake, we've missed some body language. We're not being careful or we don't care. I mean, there are lots of keepers, let's just face it, that don't care. Like, I don't care if I get bitten. I'm doing this and I'm gonna get bitten and I don't care. But we need to talk openly that... all the time that we're the biggest babies. We don't like getting bit. <laughs> I, I don't think it's good for me. I don't think it's good for the animal. So let's, yeah, and it's let's not avoid good it for my around. feelings either. Yeah. But that's not the relationship I want with these animals. And right. animals bite snakes, birds, dogs, you know, man, bird for bites usually suck, by the way. two reasons to create distance from something that they find aversive or perceive as a threat or to acquire food. Mm-hmm. And so don't make sure they know you're not food and then don't be the thing that they find aversive that they don't like, that they think is bad and, and that they're afraid of. And in order to do that, you do the gradual desensitization, which you were describing, Lucas, that you're doing with your snake, which is, well, if the snake is stressed at this threshold, then I need to back up and I need to get closer and closer until I can get up to them and they're not stressed. And that's gradual desensitization. And that's just... Um, Maybe the snake's fearful of you just being in the room. So you stay out of the room and you get, let them see you at the door. And then maybe you can walk five feet in the door and they're okay. And then you just keep doing that until they're okay with you being right next to the enclosure. And I have a whole series on gradual desensitization step-by-step and how you do that. First, you have right. to get them okay, comfortable and relaxed with your presence and then your proximity, you know, and then the next step is getting them used to some considerate touch and being introduced to handling. And then the next step after that is, is full on handling. And, you know, it's a gradual process, but the problem is many people with some animals that are smaller and easier to control. We as humans don't want to do that. I'm just going to grab you like, because I can. And so I'm just going to use force. <laughs> no, it's, it's true. And I mean, and I, I will, I also think about like, in the context of a lot of this stuff is typically we're talking in the context of a snake that's having an issue of being fearful of us. And most of the time that I would say, even in most of our collections, like with Nathan, right. And let me know if I'm wrong, Nathan, but like at least with my sub adult to adults or breeder animals and same with Nathan's, cause I've seen them interact like the fear response is they're not really scared of us. It's just for the most part, they'd rather not come out. And, or, or, you know, sometimes they do want to come out and that, that mm -hmm. first lunch might be food and then they think, right. But, um, it's, it's almost of a way of like convincing myself that I will have a, a happier, more psychologically healthy animal. If I continuously use these type of like, you know, gradual exposure or, or 
choice-based handling because right now I don't have, besides the one new adult that I have that every, you know, and as a matter of fact, my last six, seven interactions with her have been like no danger presence whatsoever. It was only the first like three, right? So it seems like we're kind of getting on the same page, but Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's one of those things where like, I don't have to worry about really getting bit. Um, you know, it's just one of those things where, again, it comes back to convenience where we open the door, we tap with the hook, food mm-hmm. response is off, you know, go ahead and just, you know, either get the body closer to you or reach in and grab the snake and you're taking the snake out. And when you're holding right. the snake, most of my snakes will look just like how, you know, TC was looking with you just comfortably with us and not frantically trying to escape or go somewhere else, but just moving like a retic does. Cause that's what they do. Right. Um, but, but it's also that aspect of like, it, it, we talk about enrichment for retics in the sense of like, Oh, you have to take them outside and you have to let them explore and you need to give them a bunch of space. But like psychological enrichment, I think is also extremely important in the sense of like giving them choices, allowing them to think instead yeah. of just react like that's a whole different aspect of enrichment. I don't think people realize. So well, you said a lot of In terms of like things. a new keeper, like just building that confidence and learning how to, you know, read your animal and gain confidence in those different situations. I think that's super important. I mean, that's well, how I got over things, my fears. That's so yeah. hard for people to get. And I saw this again yesterday. And this was hard for me to get with dogs. What did when I first started dog training a really long time ago in a galaxy far, far away, things were much different and lots of punishers were used and lots of aversive techniques were used. And I'm so glad that we've come so far, but what they used to tell you is the dog's growling at you. You can't let it get away with that. You have to teach it. They can't growl at you and you have to just like, but it's trying to talk to you and hold on to it until it stops growling. And people, I see that so much with reptiles it's trying to get away. It's hissing. It's biting. Just hang on to it until it stops. You can't teach it. It can't do that. Well, the snake is doing that because it's af- afraid. It either finds you aversive or something it doesn't like because animals move away from things they don't like and they'll move to things they like. Um, if you force yourself on the animal, it is not going to like you. <laughs> it's not going to learn not to be afraid of you. It's going to learn that you're a horrible thing and it hates you and it it has no control under those circumstances so it'll put up with it after it gets exhausted from struggling or striking or from trying to get away or it just gives up and so it's gonna sit there which i guess i guess in the situation that i'm talking about is maybe they just give up sooner and they're just like oh well this will be done soon right but is that really how you want the animal to feel about no, you? What happens no, not next at all. <laughs> yeah. So then what happens next is the next time you come in the room, it hides, right? Because it already remembers that horrible experience it had with you forcing yourself on it last time. So now it's going to hide more when you're present or it's going to increase the aggression or it's going to go the other route and withdraw and like just stop because it, it it's learned helplessness. So there are a couple of types of learned helplessness. One is objective helplessness, which I understand under these circumstances, nothing I do matters. My behavior doesn't matter. And I just have to put up with it. So that's like if you're in detention or you're in jail, um, you know, I'm here and nothing I do is going to matter. I'm going to be here. So I just have to put up with it. But as soon as I'm out of detention, 
I'm going to go back to doing whatever I want. And I know that I can control my environment and my behavior. Which is usually hide. Subjective helplessness is because my behavior didn't matter in this circumstance and it was so horrible and I tried everything and my behavior didn't matter. Now I believe my behavior doesn't matter in any circumstance. So I'm not going to behave ever. I'm just going to sit here. I'm going to withdraw. I'm going to have depression-like symptoms because we can't say that animals get depressed. We can't know that. So we say depression-like symptoms because they right. do. Um, Which you, you look at a lot of big retics in captivity that are kept in tiny enclosures. And these are animals that move a lot. And you see them most of the time sitting on the side. I'm just sitting in the same area all day. I mean, like that's a, exactly, right. yeah, just zombie, just face there. You can come in the room. It won't look at you. Um, yeah, that's that's that depression-like symptom you're talking about. So when you use these force-based techniques, you can have an animal that goes either way. Learned helplessness, withdrawal, depression-like symptoms, or just gets more and more escalated in their escape and avoidance behavior or in their aggressive defensiveness, their defensive aggression. You, you know, depending on the, the animal's innate temperament and their learning experiences, they could go one way or the other. But do we really, I don't want my animals to be in either of those categories. I want them to feel comfortable and relaxed and safe, you know, and to be fine if I'm working nearby or to come out and investigate what I'm doing and, and live and let live. You know, I don't want my animal to dislike me and see me as something aversive. And so choice-based interactions facilitate your animal learning to trust you, being comfortable and relaxed in your presence, and in some cases, even seeking out interaction with you. You can facilitate that faster through some target training or foraging exercises or puzzle feeding or some more active habituation. Um, Passive habituation is just letting the animal be- Whoa, 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 whoa. Whoa, what? You said puzzle feeding. Let's get into that. Okay. So, have you done that with your retics? Yes, TC could tell you about that. Okay. Um, TC's not really so good at. I it. have an idea what puzzle feeding is, but I feel like I want to know more. So tell me. Okay. So, um, TC, come here. Let's talk about this. Okay. So, TC, for example. When he was a baby, I started target training and we did a lot of target training, but then I also introduced foraging exercises to him. So foraging exercise might be where I set a scent trail up and I put a bunch of empty boxes and different stuff around. And then I hide food someplace, like maybe in this thing. And then when he finds it, you know, yay, he should eat it. Right. But TC would find it and then he would get an ambush position and sit there and stare at the food. I even found him laying on the food sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And, wait, and then as soon as I would walk into the room, he'd look at me and wait, and I'd pick up the food with tongs, and he'd take it immediately. <laughs> so with pythons and these sit-and-wait predators, I actually developed a shaping plan to teach them to do the puzzle feeding or the foraging. And it involves um, following the scent trail, getting to the food, initially and then me picking it up and moving it and they take it and then me moving it less and less and less until they get there and eat it so i've successfully trained um four brettles pythons and an inland carpet python to do this on their own tc has yet to take the food he gets to the food and then waits for me to give it to him but spoiled spoiled one of my um, clients danielle anise she started puzzle feeding with her um dwarf retic from the very beginning and he's good at it. 
So he can actually, he, I think he's to the point now where he can open boxes and get to the food and he takes it right away. And so that's just an exercise for them to do to extend the amount of time it takes for them to eat. Because in the wild, think about what a snake has to do to eat. First of all, they have to wake up. They have to leave their tree or their burrow or the ground or wherever they've been sleeping and resting. And they have to move and they have to locate food. And then they have to successfully acquire and manage that food, subdue it, eat it. And then they have to find their way back to their safe place so they can rest and digest. You know, that's a lot. And so trying to just think that a snake is going to sit there and you feed them out of a bowl or you feed them on tongs while they're sitting in their hide in captivity and that they aren't going to need more than that is crazy. It's It's the equivalent of what I did today, which was DoorDash sushi to my house. I mean, it's going to produce (laughs) obesity. It's going to produce possibly um, stereotypies, which are behaviors that animals do because they have energy, they haven't used the way they normally should. So now they have this energy that still needs to be used. They haven't used that energy on acquiring food and hunting and reproduction and survival and thermal regulation because they didn't have to. But that energy budget still in their genetics. And so instead, we start to see glass surfing or nose pushing or some of these other things. So if we can extend their feeding time and make it more challenging for them, make it challenges that they're able to overcome because you don't want them to get frustrated, um, then they're more satisfied at the end and more likely to go back to their enclosure and rest and digest and be content. You know, feeding's a big deal in the wild. It's a big endeavor that these snakes go out and do. And we take that away from them under captive management. Genetically and biologically, they still have those innate urges to do that. And so if they can't use it to hunt, they're going to use that energy for other things. And sometimes it's not good things. Like pushing? Yeah. Now, sometimes the pushing is because they want out. Honestly, Think about animals want to get to something or get away from something. So if they're not trying to get away from something in the enclosure. Yeah. What are they trying to get to on the outside of the enclosure? So I'll, I'll, we did a pushing episode and I'll say that I've received probably more like dozens of people that said, thank you for putting this episode out. It was tremendously helpful on how to troubleshoot pushing. And we went through, you know, the, the, husbandry parameters, the feeding parameters, the the kind of OCD-like behaviors that retics and their intelligence are capable of doing if there's a gap in their enclosure and they find it, they'll obsess over it. Um, but we have a Patreon member who just cannot get their animal to curb it. And that's because they've allowed, in my opinion, they've allowed that animal to get outside of its enclosure so frequently. And it has this spot in a cabinet, in a drawer that it mm-hmm. loves going to and it loves being out. Right. That that That's the reason I truly believe that's the reason why yeah. that snake is pushing. It, it has is. nothing to do with heat, with food. It just wants out. So freedom is a biological imperative for all vertebrates. I can't speak. I'm going to, you know, speculate probably for invertebrates too, but we know for vertebrates, and those are things with a brain and a spinal cord and a nervous system and neurochemicals and hormones that motivate behavior. Freedom is a biological imperative. Freedom to choose, freedom to make decisions, control of our environment and being able to change our environment. 
if we weren't able to do that, we wouldn't survive. Snakes wouldn't survive if they couldn't make choices and if they couldn't learn. They wouldn't be able to do all the things they do in order to survive in the wild and, and to have evolved over, what, 100 million years. There's no way. They have to be using their brains to problem solve and think and, and um, accomplish tasks. They have to modify their behavior based on prior experiences, and they have to have the freedom to do that. We have right off the bat taken away their freedom to put them under captive management. And so if a snake is born and bred in captivity and that's all they've ever known, maybe they never try to get out because they don't know any better. But I can tell you that once a snake has been exposed to enrichment or once they've been given agency, an agency is perceived control. So perceived control is like, I feel like I give my snakes agency because I let them free roam and do things they want to do, but really I'm still in control. So they have agency. True control is doing anything they want, you know, outside of my supervision or outside of being in a captive, captively managed environment. So I give them agency. And once they've had agency and you take that away, it can cause depression-like symptoms or an increase in stereotypies because now they're trying to cope with the, the fact that they can't do a thing. So think about when the pandemic first happened in 2020, how many of uh, people said, man, I wish I could work from home. I wish I never had to go anywhere. And then bam, you're quarantined. You can't leave your house. You can't um, go anywhere and you have to work from home. How long did it take people to be like, oh my gosh, I just want to go to work or I want to go do this or I'm tired of being in my house. And right. that's because there's a difference between knowing you can leave whenever you want to and knowing that you can't. And animals are vertebrates and they have a, a similar or homologous brain structure to us, to mammals. Uh, birds and reptiles do as well. So they have that biological imperative for freedom. They learn. And once they learn that they can do things and you take that away, they're going to want to do those things more. So the more that you let them out to free roam, the more they're going to want to free roam because they find it reinforcing because freedom is reinforcing and, and restriction and restraint is aversive. And that's right. across taxa. That's across vertebrate taxa. So study after study has showed that that is well conserved across vertebrates, that when something's well conserved across a taxa, it means that every vertebrate species ever studied, it's been true for. Yeah. And so then we assume until we learn differently that if it's a vertebrate, it values freedom. Freedom is reinforcing. Restraint is aversive. So what can you do then, right? You've Like TC gets to come out so much and he does hate it when I don't let him come out. So then he he's escaped on his own before. I mean, he figures out how to get out. I've found him sitting outside. I found him sitting two feet from his enclosure in a spot he likes to sit in with his doors shut. I think I've <laughs> seen that on one of your videos yeah. before. So he yeah. didn't like leave and escape and run away. He left and did the exact same stuff he does when I let him out on purpose, which was like right. from his door. But there, and also I'll have clients say, well, I might, I open the door and they just sit on the threshold. They don't actually come out. But as soon as I shut the door, they start pushing again. Yeah. 
because they just want the door open. They just want to know that if they want to come out, they can. And that's been shown in studies too, that organisms want the freedom to choose, even if they decide not to act on those choices that are available. They just want to be able to know that they can. Right. So if you've let your retic roam a lot, and they're one of the species that I see that has the strongest imperative for freedom among snakes anyway, even from the get-go. Um, how can you problem solve that when you can't let them out? So the first thing I would say is, is that room the snake likes to roam in, can you make it snake-proof? So that you can just leave the snake in that room unsupervised. Okay, if you can't do that, how can you make this snake feel like it has some agency and some control, but still it's contained. And so I have a client that has attached the, the regular enclosure with a, like a PVC tube to um, a tub that he's made into this dark, humid cave type thing. And so now you just open that opportunity up. If you keep that closed normally, you know, you're not going to be able to let the snake roam. So I'm going to open this up. Well, now the snake's like, oh, I can go in here now. Like I can leave my enclosure and I can go in this cave and I can spend time in this cave and I can come and go in this cave. I have another client that's done that with her garter snake. She's made like a garter snake city where she's connected all these tubs with hamster tubes. So the garters can move between them and feel like I'm getting out of my enclosure. I'm going someplace. I am choosing to do this. I have the control to leave where I'm at and go to this other place. And so then it reduces the trying to actually get out the door and into the room. That's, I mean, I'm, 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 I'm trying to comprehend and trying to like, I'm almost trying to think of a way right now that I can do that in my setup because I, I mean, I, the idea of it, I mean, you're absolutely right in terms of, of, you know, the, the perceived freedom um, that these animals, you know, have an innate biological component to, to, you know, have to have. And I want to, I want to caveat and, and kind of gear this into, cause we talked a lot about, um, you know, retics getting out, moving a lot. And, you know, sometimes this idea of pushing is not just temperatures, not just food related, but just the fact that they want to get out, um, I'm going to kind of summarize a quote uh, that you you typed in. So I did an interview on NPR, um, mm-hmm. Morelia Python Radio, and we covered the ethics of keeping reticulated pythons. Um, and in your comment on the episode, uh, you talked about... Um, you know, even right here, you said regarding the discussion about pushing a behavior has a structure. In this case, the structure of the behavior, what it looks like is pushing and it has a function. The question is, what is the function? So we talked about kind of your response to that agency, freedom, choice. But then right after that, you said retakes are very intelligent, very active and in the wild can have some home ranges of 10 to 50 Oh man, I'm going to, is it hectares? Hectares. So yeah. So 50 to 500 meters um, a night, which obviously we can't do for them in captivity. So you mentioned that there is a study that is being done that is going to be published soon that is looking at this exact thing 
out in the wild. Um, and I'm curious if you can talk a little bit more in regards to just kind of um, the amount that they move and you know, what, what, what is it exactly that, that in a, in an ideal captive way, like I, I know just, I think the study when it comes out and if people talk about it, which I'm hoping they do, mm-hmm. um, I would love to have the individual that that's conducting and publishing the study, be able to um, come on and talk about it. But it's a topic that a lot of people are not going to like in the retake world, just because we've, you know, for a very long time, it hasn't been until the last five years that people are starting to even just think about like, oh, maybe we should give them a 10 foot enclosure instead of a six. Right. But even comparing that to the range that they're in is nothing. Um, Right. So three years ago, you know, I was doing for a whole year, every Sunday, I did a super dwarf Sunday video about TC and our journey together and things I was learning about him and about retics. And I, I, I noticed right away that compared to some of my other snakes, he moved a lot, like he wanted out a lot, And he moved a lot. And I wanted to know what biological basis there was for that. And I stumbled upon some research by Richard Berger. And for like something like 15 or 16 years, he's been working in the field, um, studying mainland reticulated pythons and their home range and movement. And I contacted him at that time and he was writing the paper and we shared some email correspondence and he gave me some preliminary numbers for how big it looked like their home range was. And, you know, he told me their home range was something like 10 to 50 hectares. Um, the paper draft that I've since seen says possibly up to 80. Um, so as small as 25 acres for those of us in the United States, or maybe as large as almost 200 acres, that's their home range. But they don't move constantly around their home range. They're not moving every single day or every single night. But on the days and nights when they move, he told me that they move an average of about 50 meters, which is like 150 some feet. So 150 feet, I have a horseback riding arena that's 120 feet long. So it's longer than my riding arena, how much they move when they're moving around it, you know, on, on one night or one day. And when you think of a six foot enclosure or a four foot enclosure, an eight foot enclosure, you've got two sides that are eight feet, that's 16 feet, right? And two sides that are two feet. So now you've got like what, 20 feet. So they've got 20 feet to continuously move around when they might move like 150 feet in a night. And that's their natural behavior. And he stated in his emails that he thought they don't move very much and they have a small home range. And when you look at that in relation to the world, to nature, you know, to being outside, that's a small space. But when you equate that to our house or to the zoo or to the lab or to where wherever you have your retic, that's longer than your house is. For most of us who have a normal house and not a mansion, you know, 150 feet is longer than our house. And we're putting them in a cage that's six feet long or eight feet long. And then we wonder why they pace and why they want out and why they push. So is that what questions do you have about that that maybe I can answer? But I didn't do the research. My research is done under captive management. I want to be really clear. I don't study these animals in the wild. 
I study them in zoo settings and in pet home settings and in captive settings. And they're going to exhibit behaviors under captive management that they don't exhibit in the wild for two reasons. We give them constraints. We put constraints upon them that they don't have in the wild. So we're going to see some behaviors due to the constraints we put on them. But then also we give them opportunities to interact with things they would never find in the wild. TC is never going to find this tree and this plastic thing in the wild. But because it's here, he's going to interact with it. So it goes both ways. You know, they're going to interact with things that they find in captivity that aren't in the wild, but they're also going to be lacking opportunities to interact with things they would in the wild. So I really encourage when this paper comes out and um, Richard says it's going to come out this fall that everybody read it. I hope it's in an open access journal. I have a copy of his draft and it's under review right now. It's under peer review. I hope that maybe he would consent to being interviewed, but just he is a field researcher and he researches them in situ, in nature, in the wild. He doesn't keep them in captivity. And he is kind of like, I don't think this is a good species to keep in captivity because I don't think we can provide everything they need under captive management. So I'm not sure. You know, I hope that he'll talk with you. I think it would be awesome. But I just want to let you know, he's not like a huge fan of keeping Oh, for sure. In captivity. He, he's not going to be a Patreon member. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I mean, Nathan, do you have any questions on that? Because I think uh, you just kind of covered the basis of what I was talking about, because I, the only questions I had were in regards to like what these results could, could do to conflict, but also, you know, how we could also combat some of it, not combat because it's not like a war, um, but, but well, in a way of like what we can do with our animals um, and what our animals are given in captivity that that could still be stimulating. But I, we just went through all of that. But Nathan, do you have anything else? Well, and real on- quick, just to compare, because I'm very into Morelia right. and, and Australo-Indonesian pythons. I have a lot of carpet pythons. So the carpet pythons average home range for across the carpet python species, all of the Morelia spilota, is 11 acres minimum to up to 100 acres as compared to 25 to 200 acres. And then the daily average movement is like 13 feet up to 100 feet. And I keep a lot of them under captive management. And my Morelia Bredley and my inland carpet pythons, uh, the Morelia Spilota McCaffey, I move the most. I have two Bredley that free range in four of my workrooms. Like they're safe to just be loose in here. And I know how much they move. And they're much... They move a lot for a while, but then they usually find a place to settle. Whereas TC moves a lot for a while and settles. And then he'll move a lot more for a while and settle. And then he'll move a lot more. And he gets into things more. You know, like if if he encounters one of the brettles that are out, he bugs them until mm-hmm. the brettles leaves. Like he's just very much more nosy about stuff and, and into stuff where the brettles are more like, I'm going to do my thing and live and let live. And not bother you and you don't bother me. But TC is much more curious about stuff and gets into stuff. And so I I don't know how that equates to their natural history or things they encounter in their natural habitat. And the habitat that this researcher is studying is either, either plantations or forests. And there was a little bit of behavioral differences 
in how the retics behaved in the plantation versus the forest. And that's all going to be in the paper. And I really, man, it's, it's going to be, you guys are going to love this paper when it comes out. Trust me. <laughs> yeah. I'm looking, I'm looking forward to it. And, um, hopefully that that's going to be coming here soon. But yeah, Nathan, um, go ahead. I just wanted to give you some perspective on like how much the retics were moving in the wild versus another species that we might be familiar with. No, it's I absolutely right. think that the that bottom could... line is it's more. <laughs> yeah, I absolutely think that could be a, a huge factor into some of the behavioral issues that we see with our retics uh, pushing being the most frustrating for a keeper, I think. So, um, but yeah, I think there's more that goes into it as well. Uh, I mean, just environmental cues, how you're working with your animals, that kind of thing. Uh, and it's also been interesting to hear how working with my animals over time, I've implemented some of these things unknowingly, mm-hmm. um, but how to be maybe a little bit more consistent with it in order to benefit them. It's really intuitive for some people and really not for others. Like some people just can't grasp some of these concepts and it's really, really hard. One of the concepts that's really difficult and it was difficult for me to grasp is the whole, the dog is growling or the snake is striking and we can't let it get away with that. And so we need to just keep at it until they stop. But they're doing that to create distance out of fear, anxiety, or distress and so when the snake strikes at us and we, we move back and we remove our hand, now they're comfortable and relaxed because we went away and that's reinforcing for them. So it's nature's way of providing negative reinforcement in the wild, which would be teaching the snake, yeah, when something's threatening you, you need to strike at it and you need to be defensive and then it'll go away and then you'll be safe. And that safety is reinforcing. So they're learning to do that through negative reinforcement and it's hundred percent natural. It's how they learn survival in the, in the wild. We don't want them doing that under captive management, but we also don't want to flood them and force ourselves on them because that's teaching them other things we don't want them to learn. And it's, it's creating a really bad dynamic. And so the more we do approach and retreat, the like, so now maybe the snake learns, well, I don't have to actually strike. If I just get an S coil, she went away. So now I'm reinforced for just S-coiling and I'm not striking anymore. And oh, now I just looked at her and she went away. So I don't even have to spend the energy to get an S-coil. Now I find just looking at her reinforcing and you're toning down that defensive response until there isn't one. And now you can start building up the trust and working on that positive association in the opposite direction. It's really hard for people to wrap their brains around that. And it was for me too. It was really hard for me too to learn that and and understand that concept. That's huge for me right now because I have <laughs> another animal that I have that's young. It's about a she's a year old and um, fairly new to me, and she's a yeah. I mean, she's a firecracker, just scared and defensive, and and um, I have definitely been giving her her space, um, you know, to to almost to the point where, you know, I'll have the enclosure open and just do other things. Um, mm-hmm. And then at one point I turned around and she was beelining out of the tub, <laughs> out of the enclosure to go somewhere else. I was like, oh crap. Okay, wait. <laughs> so yeah. trying to find a happy medium. Um, but, but yeah, I mean that right there, those, those few points you made in terms of how to build that up, I'm going to be taking that and running 
with it and doing that with her? It's a lot of approach and retreat on, on our part too, like snakes and other animal uh, animals in general, but horses, I see it a lot with and snakes, a lot of approach and retreat to investigate stuff and until they feel comfortable with stuff. But we need to also approach and retreat and adjust our behavior based on what the snake is doing. Um, and you guys mentioned enrichment and I wanted to make sure I didn't forget to say this, that there is a difference between enrichment items and enrichment experiences. And a recent article that just came out in the American Association of Zookeepers Journal was all about how item enrichment, object enrichment, isn't always going to cut it long term. So mm -hmm. object enrichment, like my snake's pushing, I'm going to put a cardboard box in there for him to interact with, or I'm going to put something new in there for him to interact with. That may be a temporary fix because that's going to become old very quickly. Whereas enrichment experiences are things that the animal can engage with over time, like a foraging exercise, like a puzzle feeding exercise, like a maze, like this connecting another room onto the enclosure that they can interact with for a period of time, or putting the snake in an exercise tent or some type of a contained space outside of their enclosure where you don't have to watch them but they can move around. So enrichment experiences, if you can design it to be more experiential, are going to last longer and keep that snake occupied more than just throwing an object in. Not that that's bad, but it's going to be a, a more temporary fix. Yeah. Yeah, that's great I'm, to know. I'm in the process right now of designing, and it's, it's 110 degrees out here in Texas, <laughs> but... Um, when the weather cools down, um, so just for my daughter, we're, we're going to be building a new playground in the back. Um, but I'm going to get two of those, you know, tents that you can, uh, you know, the, the shade mm -hmm. tent ordeals. Um, I'm going to put two of those side by side and I'm going to get different, um, uh, like, uh, I forget what they're called. Those like half spheres that are all connected um, they're like half an igloo, but obviously yeah, those are right. for kids to climb on, but I don't know what they're called. Right. Exactly. Um, but they're going to be for my snakes to climb on. And yes. if my daughter wants to, she can too. So getting something <laughs> like that. And then under the other one, getting some other type of, um, you know, I, I wish I had the time, like some of the other people we've had on like Eric Lee to, you know, build the PVC, right. uh, you know, gymnasium type of thing, but ideally something like that. So that way I can start to take the animals out and I have a big enough backyard as well, where if they were to go on the floor and slither, you know, they could slither probably 15 feet in each direction and they're still okay. Right. Um, so the so, more yeah. they do that, the more they're likely to want to do that. But I have found with TC, he'd rather, he moves around more indoors than outdoors. Like he doesn't like to get too hot or be in the sun and then he's looking for a place to hide. And yeah. the other issue I have here in Colorado is super dry. So sometimes he wants to be out. I have some really big exercise tents indoors and sometimes he just wants to stay in them for a few days, but you can't keep up humidity in an open air enclosure. So my brettles do great in open air. I have them sometimes in some mesh enclosures and some screen enclosures and some ferret cages because they don't, they just do fine in the climate we have here. It's almost like where they come from. Bull snakes, my bull snakes the same way. Um, but when TC sometimes doesn't want to go back in his enclosure, he wants to stay out in like an open air mesh for three or four days. It can cause issues with shedding. And so then I have this room humidifier that I, I have going and it 
so both of my retics are a little bit different in their preferences. Um, TC hates that humidifier and he doesn't like mist on him at all, but he likes to swim. And TC likes more roaming open, like stretching out and roaming in open spaces and not so much climbing. Whereas Ryder, he likes this tree I have for him and he hardly ever leaves that tree. And if I have the humidifier near that, he'll go right into the mist and he'll sit in the mist. But then he doesn't swim. And so I also see a lot of behavioral differences in the retics. And I probably have a dozen clients that work with um, retics and they all have really different personalities. And I think that's because there's still wild imports. There's a lot of different lineages. So the more genetic diversity you have, the more behavioral diversity you're going to see in the individuals. Oh, for sure. Um, I have now nine localities in my garage. And out of those nine localities, um, I have some wild caught animals uh, or just one now. Um, and uh, the other ones are, are F1s. Um, and so, you know, pretty close removed from the wild and just having different localities. I mean, you see the differences pretty drastically among the different, uh, localities. So yeah, you talk about it all the time. (laughs) Yeah, no, seriously. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's real cool. Um, it's really important that we, that we tailor our care to those preferences too, because if you have a retic that is pushing or glass surfing or doing some of these behaviors that we as humans don't like, it's their attempt to cope, right? When animals do that, it's their attempt to cope with something that they're not able to do that they want to do. And when they're doing that, it doesn't, there's not a one, one thing fixes all for every retic. So like for TC, it might just be a matter of taking him out and putting him in an exercise tent and he's fine. But for another one, it might be giving them something to swim in, or it might be giving them increased humidity. You know, it might be different for each snake. So you can't just say, oh, it's pushing, do this. You know, there's not just this one single fix. You have to really get to know your animal. And so you talked about the structure and the function of a behavior. The structure is easy to describe, but then you have to think, okay, what's the function of that behavior? So when a dog is barking at me, is it barking because it wants me to leave? Because it wants me to play with it? Because it wants food? Because it's alerting me to a stranger on the property? So we can answer what that behavior looks like. It looks like barking, but what's the function of it? And that's where sometimes we have to do some detective work and address that root function. Right, yeah. Like right now, the whole glass surfing and pushing is because I have two females cycling. So every male is going crazy. Um, So, Lori, I first off just want to say, you know, I know that you said you you work at night. And I mean, you you have a meeting at like 2 a.m. Central Mm -hmm. Time that you are going to be doing tonight. So, um, or I guess I should say tomorrow. Um, (laughs) But uh, I, you know, we can't thank you enough for coming on. Uh, We record definitely at weird hours. So it just so happens that this is a time where you're alert and awake, but we appreciate you uh, from coming on. I wanted to ask you, um, I I wanted you to kind of, did you have a statement or would you, I'm asking, is there something that you would want our retic listeners uh, to know or to be aware of or words of encouragement or wisdom that you would like to give to kind of, end off the episode. I 
they're high maintenance. They are intelligent, but sometimes, so I want to give some encouragement if you're target training your retic and they seem to hit a roadblock or it seems like they were doing really well for a while. And now they're like, eh, I see the target, but I really don't feel like working today. Sometimes they can lack the motivation to work for reinforcement. Okay. So you had asked me earlier off camera about comparing them to other snakes. My inland carpet pythons are probably the most motivated python I have for target training. Like they are ready to engage and they have inhibitory control. They can do long delays to reinforcement. They can do long, intricate behaviors and they're into it. Like you can tell they're problem solving, they're thinking they're doing a lot. I've had one do a whole obstacle course. But then TC will have days like that, but then he'll have other days where it's like, okay, I moved towards the target a little bit. Now I want the food, you know, where they're just not as motivated to work. So you've got to work with the animal in front of you at that time. It doesn't matter that he did like backflips yesterday. Today, if he's not motivated to work, he's not motivated to work. We're not always motivated to go to work either. Yeah. And there's a difference between liking reinforcement and being willing to work for it. And that's all driven by dopamine. Dopamine is that motivation driver. So um, organisms whose dopamine uh, output is inhibited or diminished or, or stopped altogether will not work to eat, will not work to earn, to get anything. But they doesn't mean they don't like the food. It just means they're not going to work to get it. So some days... Right. The retics just don't seem motivated to work for reinforcement. And on those days, just make the training simple or that's the day you give them a puzzle feeder or maybe you just don't feed them that day. If they're not hungry enough to work for food that day, then okay, you must not be that hungry. You're not really putting the effort into hunting. So let's just wait a few days and, you know, maybe you'll be hungry then. The other thing is I'll say they're really high maintenance to keep occupied. Their minds are working a lot. They have a an innate urge to move a lot and they really value their freedom. And that's, I think it's natural for the species after reading this paper and after working with clients who have them and after what I hear from others who aren't my clients and after the two that I work with, um, they are very busy physically and mentally and they're high maintenance to keep occupied. And it's why I only have two. Because I don't think I could keep up with more than two and keep them engaged and keep them happy and content, you know, and keep those stereotypies down. Because I let these two out a lot. They spend a lot of time in exercise spaces. I do a lot of activities with them to keep them occupied. So I don't think that they're a snake you can just throw in a cage and leave there and think they're just going to be a display animal because they're just not going to tolerate that well. And you're going to end up with an animal that is um, either shut down eventually or whose aggressive behavior increases because there's a lack of an outlet for the normal things it would be doing. And so it's going to do something else. Nose push, be more aggressive, be hyper reactive. You know, who knows? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I I I also want to say they do potentially make good pet snakes. I think they're highly affiliative with people. As long as you train them from the beginning, you socialize them from the beginning, you establish clear communication with them from the beginning. Because where I see people get into trouble is they're confusing the snake. They haven't established cues and communication and they're just winging it. And the snake's confused and uncertain 
There's no predictability in its life. Uh, the keeper's uncertain. And then that's where train wrecks happen. Right. Can't talk to someone in English if they only know Mandarin. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, that's awesome. I, again, want to thank you so much for coming on. Um, Lori, where can people find you? Um, if they, they are hearing from you for the first time, where can they reach out to you, whether they are inquiring about services or just want to follow you on social media? Yeah, I have a website. It's behavioreducation.org. And there is a page on there that links to my work, to the papers I've published, to the in other interviews I've done, um, and to my YouTube channel. So the YouTube channel I'm really active on because I feel like me, I can tell you something all day, but if I can show you, that's going to have a greater impact than me telling you a snake can do this. If you see the right. snake doing it, then you're like, wow, the snake just did that thing. So I do um, a lot on YouTube. I also have a Patreon and that's my educational platform. So it's not an entertainment Patreon. It's a Patreon for, I do additional courses. Um, that's where, uh, my coaching clients pay me through Patreon and we set up private video coaching through that. But I do do, um, I host two group chats a month at the lowest Patreon level. So one's a training chat where people can just ask me any training and behavior questions. And then the second one is a research chat where I give everybody a paper to read or a podcast to listen to ahead of time. And then we discuss it during the chat. And then I offer office hours sometimes. Um, and then every now and then as I have time, I'll do additional classes that are Patreon only classes. So it is an educational platform. So it's, if you're looking for a Patreon, that's like an entertainment one, that's not what mine is. I think that's awesome though, because you know, I, there's, there's value that needs to be given in Patreon. It seems like an educational component in that being what you do is huge for anyone who's a part of it. Right. Um, and then I'm on Facebook and Instagram and I'm most active there. I do have a Twitter and a LinkedIn, but I'm not on those very much. I'm really on Facebook a lot and probably Instagram the, the second most. And then YouTube, I'm on at least three days a week. I, I put videos up. Okay. Awesome. Well, Lori, thanks so much. Hopefully you have a, a good 2 a.m. meeting coming up. And um, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to having you back on in the future. I'm going to be giving target training a whirl. So I'll... Okay. Uh, we I'll, could do I'll a live you... coaching session for one of your podcasts. That would be cool. I mean, I'm that happy would... to come back and answer specific questions on like a single topic or whatever you guys need. If it's training yeah. and behavior related, I'm happy to do it. But I'm not, I'm not the person yeah. to call. Like that's my area of expertise. So don't call me if you want like to talk about lighting or heating or like there's people who are experts <laughs> in that. That's not me. <laughs> Well, we appreciate you and uh, thanks again. Okay, no problem. Thank you. Bye, Lori. All right. Oh, man. So much information to soak. I'm motivated, but also terrified to start this because don't know how it's going to go. But um, yeah, I, I enjoyed that one a lot, Nathan. Yeah, I did too. Uh, just a ton of great information thrown at you guys. Uh, another episode I think that's worth re-listening to time and time again, at least on my end. So, um, Lucas, any any little closing thoughts on maybe how you're going to implement or, you know, just your practices moving forward with behavioral training? 
Yeah, so I think just consistency with the choice based handling um, and being more patient, trying to find times where, you know, I have my schedule of when I go into the snake room and, and the different set days of the week that I have Sean that comes over and helps. And so um, I really just need to take a moment to be more patient with the ones that aren't coming out. Um, and, uh, you know, even if I need to move on to another snake, um, uh, that's one area of choice-based handling. It's just more patience when it comes to that and really just trying to minimize force interactions. Uh, I think that's huge because I've even seen it with like my hatchlings, um, that I've hatched here myself, you know, I'll open up that hatchling rack and, um, I just wait, like I don't have my hook. Um, I let them come out and then literally it's just, it's a light bulb thing where they come out and they're always curious, inquisitive and food is almost second nature. And I'm thinking to myself, why is this so different with all the sub adults and adults that I do? And it's because I, you know, a lot of the animals I got, I didn't get until later. And then I kind of just did the same old, but with the babies, you know, I'm, I'm being a new breeder. You kind of get excited. You open up, you want to interact with like the, the little cute babies and so i noticed the confidence is like much higher um and the the you know the interactions are much more rewarding i think for for them and for me as well so wanting to just implement that more and then yeah i'm gonna give target training a whirl with the sula that i just got um you know as as well as choice base uh interaction handling and we'll we'll see how that goes and hopefully you know down the road i can have like a 16 18 foot puppy Sula, that is just me and her are, are like this, connecting on a, a very deep level. I can't wait to see all the videos of Aspen, uh, almost like Sonny and Cher, <laughs> you know? So Right. Uh, yeah, man. Yeah, I think a, a lot of the same for me. Consistency is going to be the big one. And just offering them a little bit more agency, like she was talking about, I think makes me feel better as a keeper. So, uh, right. yeah. Another one in the books, Lucas. We'll see you guys next Friday. Uh, for those of you that want more access to the Retic Lounge, make sure to join our Patreon, get in the Discord, join our live chats every other Friday. Uh, and yeah, like I said, we'll see you next Friday. See you, everyone.